Hello everybody, this is Jennifer Matteris, and before I get started recording the episode today, I'd just like to take care of the usual housekeeping. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can always do so through our Patreon, with which you can support it per episode. If you'd like to help with a one-time donation, and now is a really great time to do so since I'm kinda struggling right now, you can do so through the PayPal link pinned to the top of the podcast's Facebook page. And as always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. Also, thanks go out to Allison for supporting the Kickstarter and for suggesting the subject for this episode. I never would have thought of it, but it was actually a really interesting read, so thanks a lot, Allison. And with all of that in mind, thank you very much for listening, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 30, The Great Smog of London, December 5th, 1952, 12,000 deceased, over 150,000 injured. Does the minister not appreciate that last month, in Greater London alone, there were literally more people choked to death by air pollution than were killed on the roads in the whole country in 1952? A question posed to Minister of Housing Harold Macmillan by a member of Parliament following the Great Smog of 1952. If you haven't watched The Crown on Netflix yet, you should really check it out. I'm a sucker for the art direction, costuming, hair, and makeup in period dramas. I've already gone to see Hidden Figures like three times already. (laughs) And The Crown is flawless. But in the fourth episode, it also covers a famous event which occurred early in Queen Elizabeth II's reign, a particularly timely one given recent talk in American politics about whether or not regulations are really that important. So, London has always dealt with fogs and smogs, which, if you're unaware, are two completely different things. But the phrase London fog is one that we're all familiar with. Now, it has been dealing with these sorts of things for as long as it's been around. As far back as the Middle Ages, enormous piles of coal were accumulating in the city as a result of sea trade. In the 13th century, mounds of coal littered city streets and any other empty space where it could gather. Alleys, docks, any open space, there was a big pile of coal on it. So in an attempt to get rid of it, Londoners started burning it. It was actually a welcome change from wood at the time, if only because it burned longer and hotter. But it did produce chemicals, particles, all sorts of different things that weren't exactly a good trade-off. In December of 1813, thick smog reeking of coal tar covered the city for several days. The death rate would rise markedly during different smogs that the city would have. Every time the smog came, December of 1873, January of 1880, December of 1891, the death rate would rise. The east end of London was the most affected area in London, lying low and crowded with factories and homes as it is. With the factories from the Industrial Revolution came the smoke which belched from their smokestacks, spewing poisonous gases and particles into the air. When these particles hang in the air, water clings to them, which creates smog. The difference between fog and smog is evident by looks texture, etc. Actually, right now, outside my window, 
I have fog outside, but it looks a lot different than smog does, particularly pictures of the great smog. Fog is clean and white. It's basically a big cloud that is slightly lower than it's supposed to be. But smog looks sickly and yellow or brown. Smog has a strong, foul smell, and it may even leave a nasty, greasy taste in your mouth. The chemicals which make up smog can turn into acid, irritating the skin, clogging the throat, and corroding buildings. So fog is an annoyance. It makes an impact on visibility. It can make it really hard to see five feet in front of you, but it's not dangerous to breathe. And that's really the big difference between fog and smog. One of the things which caused smog in the London area was the overabundant use of coal for heating purposes that had, of course, been going on for several centuries. After World War II, Great Britain used a lower grade of coal, since the better coals, which were harder, were being exported. Using this cheaper coal produced higher levels of sulfur dioxide. Not only were private homes using coal, but the many power stations in the area did as well. So you have all of these different buildings that are using this dirty coal, and it is producing a lot of smog. London was not the only area in the world that was affected by toxic smogs. Not now, not then. On October 27, 1948, a thick smog enveloped the town of Denora in southwestern Pennsylvania. A layer of warm air, higher in the air, trapped hydrogen fluoride and sulfur dioxide emissions from local steel factories in the colder air that was lying lower to the ground. For four days, the 14,000 citizens of Denora choked on clotted air, struggling to breathe. By the time a Halloween rainstorm destroyed the smog, 20 people had died and a third of the town had been sickened. Another 50 people would die in the following weeks, including among the dead was Stan Musial, the famous baseball player. His father passed away in this particular smog incident. And even 10 years down the line, people were still suffering the ill effects of the Denora smog of 1948. Now, in London in 1952, there were three weather factors that combined at the same time in late November and early December of 1952. For one thing, it was cold, very cold. There were heavy snowfalls that blanketed the re region as the weather worsened. In fact, that, I think that was one of the things that I noticed in the Crown episode is that the beginning of the episode, you don't really see a lot of snow. So considering I was researching this at the time, that kind of struck me. During the colder conditions, people in London understandably burned more coal to keep warm, which led to gritty smoke pouring from smoke stacks across the city. There were also windless conditions and an anti-cyclone. Now, when you picture a cyclone, you picture a big swirling circle of wind that is going around and around very, very quickly, or blowing in a different direction, just basically a very windy thing. But an anticyclone is kind of different. It's basically a large circle of slowly spinning winds moving clockwise in the northern hemisphere around an area of high pressure. It actually moves counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere, I believe it is. So the air in an anticyclone is cooler closer to the ground than it is above it, creating this warm lid of air on the area. Now, we've already seen how that 
affected Denora. Obviously, this is going to negatively affect London. This leads to calm weather and haze or fog. Meanwhile, while this is happening, Londoners are attempting to warm their homes, like I said, on this chilly December night, and steadily working factories and, and these homes are pumping out a thousand tons of smoke particles, 2,000 tons of carbon dioxide, 140 tons of hydrochloric acid, 14 tons of fluorine compounds, and 370 tons of sulfur dioxide. So there's a lot of crap being sent up into the air. The smog begins to thicken in London on the evening of December 5th. That day, the fog in London was kind of dry and smoky. Earlier in the day, it was calm and clear with moisture closer to the ground that was hinting at fog that would come later on. The anticyclone trapped the smoke from these coal fires, particle gases spilling from factory chimneys, and pollution which easterly winds brought from uh, continental industrial areas. So all of this stuff is just piling into the bowl that is London. This stuff, all of, all of these particles and gases, everything that is accumulating in London is creating a toxic layer hundreds of feet deep. The combination of all of this begins to develop this layer of smog that grows over the London area, turning the fog that was already hanging in the air a sickly yellow color. When you watch the fourth episode of The Crown, it's really interesting how you see it. You see this fog and the fog looks okay, but at night when the smog starts to grow, it starts to develop and things start to be moving a little bit in the fog. Apparently they did this all with practical effects. It isn't CGI and there's something really creepy about the way that it's done in the episode. It seems almost like the mist or the fog or you know, one of those horror movies where this creeping thing is coming for you and there's not really anything that you can do about it without an enormous wind machine. Smog in London was by no means unusual. They would call them pea supers, but this smog was almost immediately recognized as being worse than normal. Over the course of the weekend, the smog thickens and thickens and thickens, spreading across a 30-mile-wide area. Visibility was reduced to terrifying levels. The smog darkened to a point that there are photographs that I found, and they were on Huffington Post. They're actually really, really gorgeous photos. And one of them shows that it was taken at 2 p.m., you can't tell. It looks like it was taken at midnight. It is that dark. In some areas, it was so dark that people couldn't even see their feet. Oxford and Cambridge had an annual cross-country competition on Wimbledon Common, and they still went through with it using track marshals who shouted, this way, this way, Oxford and Cambridge, this way. Birds were so lost, they flew straight into buildings. One legally blind woman who was a young girl at the time was being escorted home by her mom from school and was able to warn her mom just before she walked them both into a wall. 
The echoes of their voice changed and alerted the young girl to the obstacle in their path. So this is how bad it is that a blind girl has a better chance of finding her way around a little bit just because of the changes in sound. You know, everybody else is depending a little bit more on their eyes, and that's where she has a little bit of an advantage here. London's buses would proceed through the fog with a conductor walking in front of them, holding up a light to lead the way. Some of the most beautiful shots of the great smog of London, and as deadly as it was, there are some really beautiful photographs that came out of it. There are just a lot of photos of these conductors walking in front of these double-decker buses holding up lights. And they're really gorgeous photos, like I said, but this is a very serious, a very serious event. And they realize this, you can't go fast, you can't just drive. You can't even drive in many cases with your head hanging out the window, which was how a lot of people were driving in their cars. They would inch along with their heads out hanging out the window if they bothered to drive at all. A lot of people just kind of gave up and stopped their car and just started walking. All transportation was crippled much the same way in London, save for the London Underground. It was a little bit better underground. There was still a little bit of of smog as far as I could see from the photo that I saw, but it really looked a lot better underground than it did above ground. Boats, planes, trains, all canceled. All flights were canceled. People were just not even taking a chance. Even something as simple as walking could be an issue. Obviously, you can't see a foot in front of your face. And the smog left a greasy black film on everything, so it could make walking slippery. The Port of London Authority officers were to patrol the riverside, but in the smog, this became a risk, as they might not see where they were going and fall into the Thames. So they started carrying a fog stick. Just uh, They were calling it a fog stick. It's basically a cane which they would tap along in front of them to feel the edge of the river to make sure that they didn't fall into it. Of course, with officers just as blind as everyone else, thieves took advantage. Robberies increased as the thieves were able to make getaways without being caught. Really, you could walk five feet away and the police couldn't see you. So that made it a little easier for the thieves of London to get more work in. The smog even began to penetrate indoors. A performance of La Traviata at Sadler's Wells Theatre in Islington needed to be stopped because the smog was so thick inside the theatre the audience couldn't even see the stage. The same thing happened in movie theatres. You'd buy your ticket, you'd go inside, you'd sit down, and you'd realize that this yellowish fog that's all around, you can see the light of the screen, but you can't see the details of what's being projected onto it. The health impact was immediate, but London's, Londoners were apparently approaching the smog without panic, even as people started to drop like flies. They understood what was going on. They quickly realized this is not good, but, you know, that old poster, keep calm and carry on, that you see everywhere, it, it, this kind of seems like the perfect example of it. People were really trying to find a way to deal with this smog, and so... While they understood that things were bad, they also were finding ways to deal with it. However, 
people who were weakened, uh, who were in a state where they would succumb to something like this, they were the ones who were being really seriously impacted. Those with pre-existing respiratory conditions found themselves suffering from the negative impact of the gases and particles in the smog. The very young and the very old were also struck by the smog. There was bronchitis and pneumonia that was sweeping through the city, choking Londoners, some of them even to death. It wasn't just people either. Animals were struck down as well. There was a livestock and farm machinery show occurring that weekend that saw cows, horses, and other animals which had been brought there collapse and die, unable to breathe in the smog. However, as the Great Smog wasn't exactly an in-your-face disaster, a lot of people really didn't understand just how serious it was until undertakers started to run out of coffins. While people understood that, you know, this is aggravating people's breathing and all of that, they really didn't understand just what the death toll was going to be until all of a sudden you turn around and florists are running, running out of flowers because they have to make bouquets for funerals. The Great Smog lasted from Friday, December 5th to Tuesday, December 9th. Once the weather changed, the smog left as quickly as it had come. Much like in Denora when there was a rainfall on Halloween, uh, a cold wind broke through and blew the smog out over the North Sea. In the following weeks, the government would discover the terrifying impact of the Great Smog. Up until December 8th, 4,000 people died as a direct result of the fog, with over 100,000 who were sickened by the smog's effect on the upper respiratory tract. Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Lipton said in the House of Commons the following February that the smog may have cost the lives of 6,000 Londoners. He also mentioned that 25,000 Londoners sought sickness benefits at the time as well. 150,000 people would end up being hospitalized as a result of the smog. In recent years, it's been found that the death toll may have been as high as 12,000, with 8,000 dying in later weeks and months, much like how in Denora you had 50 people who were dying later on because this smog aggravated their respiratory systems. There was a study that was done last year to kind of see the long-term effects of smog on, uh, on this particular smog on people who'd been babies or who'd been in utero at the time. It suggested that young children and unborn babies may have suffered from the great smog to the point where they developed asthma to the tune of a 20% increase among that population. Another study from last year showed a slightly higher chance of developmental delays in people who were children or in utero at the time of the Great Smog. Uh, they had fewer degrees, a lot of them had a worse education and a worse, uh, a worse job situation, presumably leading from the bad foundation that they had because of the effects of the Great Smog. In 1953, thousands of doctors convened to recommend that Londoners protect their respiratory system from air pollution with a sixpence worth of gauze folded over six times and tied around the nose and mouth. Time magazine said, uh, quote, the, the meshes of the mask, said the committee, would arrest most of the soot, while moisture from the breath condensed on the mask would prevent passage of some of the chemicals that cause lung trouble. The British Medical Association backed the mask, but the Ministry of Health did not. Either way, chemists, which is 
the term for pharmacists, if you're not aware, and all over London, quickly sold out of gauze. The problem was that the masks themselves were basically useless. They're really no more help now than they were then. The government response to the Great Smog was an exercise in inaction. The public knew about the threats uh, long before the British government would bother to acknowledge it. It was one of those things where the government was really kind of hedging their bets, I guess. Uh, Minister of Housing Macmillan set up a committee to analyze the smog, but he really didn't kind of push for anything immediate to prevent the smog from accumulating in the city. In 1954, the committee report found that deaths remained higher than usual until the end of February 1953. But of course, by that point, they're really not doing a lot to stop the sort of causes that led to the Great Smog in the first place. And for a long time, the government also blamed the deaths on the flu rather than the smog. If I'm remembering correctly, in the fourth episode of The Crown, which covers the Great Smog, the uh, uh, Winston Churchill, I'm sorry, <laughs> blanked for a minute. Uh, Winston Churchill basically says among the same thing, he says that it's the cause of a flu that's going around. Another issue was that in post-war Britain, the expense of investing in cleaner coal and safer heating options was a serious consideration. This was a country that really didn't have a lot of money at the time. And rationing was still going on. There were other cost-cutting ideas. You know, people were still eating horse meat. Uh, so it was a lot of things where changing to a more expensive version of coal, that was something that they really had to consider. And any other sort of heating option, they really had to think about the cost very, very seriously. The Great Smog led government officials to institute several environmental regulations in response, including the Clean Air Act of 1956. There was also another one that happened in the 60s as well. But the regulations can basically be boiled down to this. The burning coal in urban areas was restricted to prevent the sort of smog which enveloped London in 1952. And homeowners were encouraged to switch their heating to cleaner coals, gas, or electricity. In spite of all the changes inspired by the Great Smog of 1952, many weren't implemented quickly enough to prevent another occurrence in December of 1962, which killed 750 people. However, London hasn't suffered from the same degree of smog since then, thanks to the regulations put into place as a response. The Great Smog was the worst air pollution event in the United Kingdom and among the worst in history. Many compare the Great Smog to recent air pollution incidents in cities like Mumbai and Beijing. In recent years, because of the smog events in cities in China, scientists have had a, an opportunity to understand a little more how the Great Smog came to being. A lot of studies involve those air pollution problems in China in which 60 of the 20 cities with the worst air pollution in the world are located. One article from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that sulfur dioxide emitted from the burning coal in local homes in, uh, became sulfuric acid particles facilitated by nitrogen dioxide, which was also in the air from the coal fires. 
The difference between the Chinese smogs and the London smog in 1952 is the sources of the problematic materials in the air. In London, the products were coming from power plants and residential homes. In China, you have sulfur dioxide that's coming from the power plants, nitrogen dioxide that's coming from power plants and vehicles, and ammonia that's coming from fertilizer use and vehicles. In China, the Hazen smog is more neutral compared to the London smog, however. It really takes such a specific amount of each of those chemicals to combine to create the sort of problematic smog that London suffered from that China really doesn't have the same issues in terms of, of, of death and um, fatality. And not that that's not to say that they don't, but it's not as serious as the London smog in 1952 was. I have a list of all of the subjects that I still have to do for my Kickstarter, and I'm going to try to get them done by the end of the month, knock on wood. But um, <laughs> I had them in order. I had them in a certain order. And I was planning to do them in a certain way. And then as the news starts to change in our rapidly changing world, I've been sort of shuffling things around. So things that are more relevant to what's going on in the news right now, that's the things that I start to address. So as I was kind of researching this one on the side, our our president decided that uh, he was going to uh, write an executive order that uh, decreased regulations and another politician, I believe out of Arkansas, pushed forward a bill to eliminate completely the Environmental Protection Agency. And so all of these things are coming out while I'm writing about a disaster that inspired the sort of regulations that these sorts of company, uh, government bureaus, that sort of thing, I should say, uh, that they take care of. And so it's a little difficult for me. It's a little frustrating because every time one of these stories comes out, I'm inevitably researching a disaster that was caused by taking away the regulation or not even having the regulation in the first place that they're trying to get rid of. And so it's it's very frustrating for me um, because I feel like I'm yelling into a void sometimes, and uh, that's not uh, in regards to this podcast. That's more in regards to when I'm yelling at my computer when I see these sorts of news stories pop up. Um, I kind of want to sit down with these people and say, no, see, this is what happens when you take away this and you take away that. And, and there was, um, I believe it was the executive order that he wrote said that uh, if you add a new regulation, you have to take two away. And I, it seems like such a broad thing. I'm not exactly sure if it really applies to this sort of thing, but how does that work exactly? If a plane crashes and you discover something is wrong with it, that you have to add a new regulation, maybe because of the amount of time that pilots are getting a chance to sleep. Well, what do you take back? Which regulations do you get rid of? And it's really frustrating for me because all of those regulations are there for a reason. They don't put them there be for fun. 
they're not there for funsies. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot like when you look at a box of Q-tips and I haven't looked at them in a while, so I don't know if this is still on there, but that warning, you know, do not stick directly in ear. There's a reason for that. They put those sorts of things on there because people have stuck them in their ear and then jammed them through their, their, their ear canal in just horrible ways. So that's the kind of thing that's, uh, that's, frustrates me sometimes about doing this podcast is that I do all this research and I learn all of this stuff, all of this new stuff, and it's really fascinating to me. And then I turn around and I watch the news and find out that a lot of the things that I'm learning about are being reversed or being ignored or just kind of being forgotten about or people aren't being educated them uh, on them and given what's happening in the news today probably aren't going to be educated on them in the next four years so it's it's really frustrating for me as as somebody who does this podcast to to watch the news anymore i just kind of want to bang my head off things and this particular episode when i first uh was given the subject by allison i kind of didn't even think about it as a disaster. And then I realized 4,000 people died during that weekend, uh, during that week as, as a result of what happened. And another 8,000 died in the next couple of months because of that. It was thousands of people died in it. It's one of the deadliest disasters I've ever covered on the podcast so far. And it's just, it seems so innocuous, you know, it's particularly when you're someone who's grown up uh, watching TV shows where they talk about smog in LA and it always seems to be kind of a joke. Oh, you know, LA had smog and I, I'm not sure if they still has smog, but, uh, as bad as it used to when they were making all of these jokes about LA smog, but uh, it's just one of those things where I, I can't wrap my brain around it. I, I can't wrap my brain around, um, uh, reversing the sort of regulations that keep this sort of thing from happening. And I can't wrap my brain around uh, the fact that something that seems so innocuous, at least in passing, is so dangerous. You know, you when you think of smog, you kind of, it's kind of seems interchangeable with fog. In fact, a lot of the articles that I use as sources interchanged the words smog and fog. And there's a complete difference between the two. And so it, it, when I'm looking out the window now and I'm seeing fog, it, it's a little creepier in a way because I'm kind of afraid to uh, go outside a little bit because he, just that creeping image that I have from the fourth episode of The Crown where all of this stuff starts filling the air where it's just clearly... A little more terrifying than it was before. Um, it's not. I'm perfectly safe. That's just fog. But <laughs> uh, in this day and age, it's it's a little hard not to be a little afraid. I think. Um, not exactly sure what I'm doing next episode. Uh, I'm still juggling uh, the ones that I have left from the suggestions that I got from the Kickstarter. Uh, I did do that different subject last week that I just kind of wanted to do something a little different to um, break up the list that I had. But uh, next week I should be able to do that. I'm kind of hoping I can do a movie break in the next couple of days too. I could use the break mentally at least, emotionally. Oh, 
and I can't take a vacation. So, uh, you know, so much stress in my life right now. Uh, that is, uh, you know, going on vacation, I can't afford, I can't, can barely afford to leave the house. So, um, with that in mind, uh, I really would like to thank you guys again for listening and I will see you next time. So stay safe. Thank you.